We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. I'm going to read it. So if you'd like to follow along, the uh, verses will be on the, on the slides as we go as well. This is what it says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And this morning, as we come to a topic that is so beyond even our, our mind's capacity to grasp, a concept that strikes sometimes even fear in our hearts, because of the holiness of your character. Humble us, Father. Humble me. Lord, there's even a sense in my own heart that that I'm not even worthy to be used by you to preach this word now. But Father, we thank you that for each of us, you've called us to be holy and set us apart for your purposes. So take these words now, use them for your glorious purposes in making people more and more like your character. And we prayed in Jesus' strong name. God's people said, Amen. I just wanted to uh, also say Happy Mother's Day to all those mums are here as well. Uh, there's, there's a few and I think a lot of people are actually away at their uh, maybe their home church, their, their parents' church this morning, spending time with their mums, which is a nice thing as well. A while ago, uh, just at the end of 2013, Mark Chopper Reed was interviewed just before his death. He died of liver cancer. And the interviewer said to him, Chopper, you've been quoted to say that when you die, you go to the pearly gates, you're going to ask God for an apology. And he said, yeah, you know, I I am going to ask God for an apology because I feel like, you know, the the life that I've lived, the the way that it's played out for me, I feel like I'm going to get to heaven, they're going to open books and they're going to say, well, See, we've given this bloke a bit of a rough trot, and God's going to give me an apology. Interesting. Or maybe earlier this year, you would have seen the, um, the social media outcry over Stephen Fry's outburst over God when he was asked, you know, let's just assume that it's all true, and you get to the pearly gates, what would you say? And he said, how dare you? How dare, what about bone cancer in children? How dare you? We can hear these comments about God and be confronted that here are people who have said things of God that don't sit well with us. And you can't help but think, you know, if these men had had a true vision of the character of God, they wouldn't have been so careless with their words. But you know, the problem of treating God unfairly, of viewing God unfairly, isn't just a problem that's outside of the church. It's actually within the church as well. 
Because so often we treat God like he's just a mate, right? God's my friend. And, and that's true. God is our friend. He is a friend of sinners. He is our, our father, but he's also Lord and he's also holy. I can, I can remember this time I was having a discussion bordering on argument with a friend of mine who said to me, I was asking about his personal devotion habits. He said to me, oh, I just pray in the toilet when I'm doing number twos. And I was like, interesting. And I thought, I'm just not comfortable with that. Why am I not comfortable with that? I mean, I know that God's not polluted like old covenant times, but just something about the holiness of God that I'm just not comfortable with praying in the toilet. We just so flippantly approach God and who he is and his character. Well, this morning, what I want to look at is the holiness of God. And in particular, Peter, I think here in this passage, gives us five motivations, five reasons for our own personal holiness. And so I want to walk through each of those this morning. But before we get there, I just want to say this about holiness. Holiness isn't being nice. It's not what holiness is. Holiness holiness isn't just like some stoic virtue, like I'm holy, right? That's not what holiness is in the Scriptures. Holiness is a call to live a distinctly different, set-apart, righteous life like Jesus. That's what it means to be holy when we look at this word holiness in the Scriptures. So this morning I'm going to give you five reasons, five motivations that Peter gives us for holiness. And the first is this, in verse 13, our future determines how we live our present. This is what it says, verse 13. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That therefore looks all the way back to chapter 1 verse 3 where Alnado began last week. And he's saying in light of all, of all of this, all of this gospel that was explained to us, is there any practical outworking of the gospel that Alnado reminded us of last week? Of course there is. The gospel affects every single corner of our life and it begins with our minds. That phrase there, prepare your minds for action, in the original language it's actually this, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now we don't speak like that anymore. Maybe you weren't expecting to hear the word loins in church, but that's what it says, gird up the loins of your mind. And in, in uh, Greek culture around the time of Jesus, men in particular would often wear long flowing robes or long overgarments that would flow all the way down to their ankles. And that wasn't particularly helpful for running, for war, for any type of physical activity. And so what they would do is they would gather up their robes and they would tuck it into their belt. And that would be called girding up your loins. And so Peter is saying here, gird up the loins of your minds. Maybe a cultural equivalent might be to say, roll up the sleeves of your mind or get your head in the game. Prepare your mind for action by being sober-minded, by being clear-headed. Later on in uh, chapter 4, verse 7, he will say, be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Or in 5 verse 8, he'll say, be sober-minded and watchful because the devil is prowling, seeking to destroy. There is this mental energy that we need to exert, a focus. This is not a time for spiritual laziness, he's saying. We're to be focused fully on the grace that is to come. Setting our hope fully 
on the grace that is to come. Last week, Alnardo spoke about hope and where our hope might lie outside of the hope that Jesus brings us. And if you were here last week, maybe you were convicted by God over something in your life that you've been placing too much hope in. And I was just reflecting this week, it's funny how quickly conviction can just disappear within the space of seven days. We're onto a new sermon and new message. And if you were convicted last week, don't let that conviction slide. Set your hope fully, fully on the grace that will be revealed. Because our future, where we're heading, determines our present. It changes absolutely everything of how we live now. That's the first foundational reason. The second is this, your identity as a child of God. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. As obedient Children, children. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says you have been, or God has caused you rather to be born again into a living hope. We have been born again. Every single person has been born of an earthly family, but those in Christ have now been born again of a spiritual family. God has made you his children. He's called you his family. He's adopted you. That's why at Anchor we often refer to ourselves as a family of missionaries. Because we are sons and daughters of God. We're a family together. And Peter says we ought to be obedient children. Obedient children. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Because we get to do that. If we're in Christ, we're a new creation. Completely new. And there used to be former passions that drove us, but now we have a new passion, a new desire that drives us, and that is the pleasure of our Father. The pleasure of our Father. You know, I think a a lot of my friends growing up at university thought that my faith was just a bit of a moral leash. I I lost count of the amount of times that people would say to me, hang on, can I, this might be a little bit personal, but... If you're a Christian, does that mean you can't have sex before marriage? And I'm like, yeah, it does. And they're like, it was like the the biggest thing for them. They couldn't fathom that that would almost be possible, that someone would have a desire to please their Heavenly Father more than anything else in this world. That's what happens when we have a new identity, when we're God's children. We begin to live for His pleasure. Our desires are reshaped and changed. Holiness is... Far from dry obedience to God, it's relational. It's, it's actually about love. If God is my Father, and He has loved me with an immeasurable love, then I, I just want to give everything for Him. If He has rescued me, if He's saved me, if He's taken me from an orphan to make me a child, I want to live my life for Him. And so our, our gospel identity as a child of God drives us towards holiness. The third reason that Peter says we ought to live a transformed, distinct life is the holiness of God itself. Have a look at verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You know, we often talk about God being holy or the holiness of God. But what what does that actually mean for God to be holy? When we say that, we mean that God himself, his character is distinct. 
He is different. He is entirely set apart. He is transcendent because He is creator and we are creation. His holy uniqueness makes Him entirely worthy of worship, makes Him supremely valuable. And so in Exodus 15.11 it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in deeds, doing wonders? Who is like God? There is no one, no one like God, no other God, no other created being is like God. He is unique, he is set apart and distinct. But his holiness is also about his perfection. You remember John says in 1 John 1, 5, he says, God is light. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. There is no corner of darkness in the character of God. Not even the tiniest little bit. There is no sin. There is no imperfection that mars his character. He's perfect in holiness. Utterly glorious in every single way. When we speak of the holiness of God, we speak of his relational and moral perfection. And you know what happens when people encounter this type of holiness? This is what happens. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2. He has a vision of the Lord. And in verse 2 it says, Above the Lord stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The holiness of God absolutely floors Isaiah flattens him. Or you take Ezekiel, for example, the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 1.28 says this, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Or you take the, the Apostle John, for example, in Revelation 1.17, he has a vision of Jesus and he sees Jesus with with hair that is white like wool and eyes like burning fire and his feet like bronze. And this is what John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When people have an encounter with the holiness of God, it it literally paralyzes them. They, They go uncontrollably weak at the knees. There's no time for accusations. There's no time for apology requests. When people come face to face with the holiness of God, we are flawed because he is perfect and we are sinful. Friends, God is not tame. In fact, if you were to ask Isaiah or Ezekiel or John, men that have had such an encounter, they might even say that God is terrifying in his holiness at least. The purity of God's holiness is white hot. You know, when God dwelt amongst his people, Israel, in 
as he, he brought them out of slavery and, and into the promised land, he dwelt with them in what was called the tabernacle. It was a temporary future temple that was going to get built. But that, temp, that tabernacle existed because the holiness of God was almost hazardous to God's people. How could a holy and perfect God dwell in the midst of people who were sinful and had rejected Him? And so they built this tent and at the very center of the tent was the Holy of Holies, the place where God, God's presence was said to dwell. And in a way of protecting the people from God, they put a curtain there. said, do not enter this because the holiness of God would consume you if you did. God is holy. That's what it means when we say the holiness of God. He is perfectly righteous in every single way. And Peter calls this church to be holy like God. Verse 15, go back to it with me. But as he who called you is holy with a, a white, hot perfection of character, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Be holy, be like God in all of your conduct, in all of it. Not, not just Sundays, not just when you're at gospel community. Holiness is an all of life thing, every corner of our lives. Your public life, your private life, your online life, your offline life, your Sundays, your Mondays, your Friday nights, your Saturday night, all of it. All of life is to be holy. You know, part of the marginalization that we experience of our faith in culture is that we're told that your faith is something that is private. Your views are private. You need to keep them to yourself. And so we can end up believing that lie and living compartmentalized lives where we have this sacred version of our life, which is Sundays and gospel community and hanging out with church friends. And then this secular part of our life, which is the rest of life, work and family, whatever else. Peter says it doesn't work like that. All of your life is sacred. All of your life is to be set apart and holy to the Lord. Peter says, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a direct quote from the book of Leviticus. And when God calls his people Leviticus to holiness in that book, I mean, it's almost the whole book, right? You remember any of the things that he mentions when he calls them to holiness? He talks about their uh, cooking utensils. He talks about mold in their house. He talks about even their haircuts, all of their life, their sexuality, their children, every single part of it, every minute detail of their life was to be holy, was to make them distinct and set apart. And it was a demonstration that these are God's people because they are holy like He is holy. Be holy in all of your conduct. All of it. And so let me, let me ask you this morning, are there areas in your life where you have said to God, you're not allowed in here. You said to the Spirit, hands off. This, this is mine. Are there areas in, in your life like that? You know, we, we can't just close the door on certain rooms of our life and put a no, no entry sign on the front. God doesn't want to just renovate part of the house. He wants to renovate the whole house, every single corner of our life. Be holy in all of your conduct. Maybe there's things this morning that the Spirit of God is convicting you over that you need to 
bring to the feet of Jesus and say, I surrender this to you. I surrender all of my life to you, all of my conduct. You know, I think um, how, how we try and figure out holiness is we do, we do this, um, this weird game. We, we come to a church and we think, all right, what is, what is the standard of holiness around here? And we think, all right, holiness, it's about there. And so we think, all right, I'm just going to aim for this like middle of the road kind of holiness so I can fit into this, the Christian culture here at this church. And, and, and we see it. I mean, you know, we, we have this like, what, what's the level of God talk I can, I can engage in before it's weird? Or, or not, not enough because they might not think I'm a Christian. You know what? Or what are, what are the things that are considered just you know, respectable sins and then the really bad ones? You know? And so we have this culturally defined level of holiness and we just want to slot in middle of the road and, and fit in. But you know, the problem with figuring out what holiness is when you do that is what happens when you encounter the living God? What happens when you're confronted with His holiness? You see, we ought not compare this way and think, all right, well, what level of holiness do I need to attain to fit in here? We ought to compare this way and say, what level of holiness does God call me to? Be holy because He is holy. Not be holy in the way that the people in your church are holy. Be holy because He is holy. God is the benchmark of our holiness. And he is perfect in every single way. Jesus put it like this in Matthew 5, 48. He said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. Now before, I know what's going on in your head. Before you run to excuses, before you run to the gospel, which we all want to do when we read that, just, just let that linger for a second. Be perfect. Be holy like God. You know, sometimes I think we just run to grace so quickly or we, we run to excuses. We're like, well, well how can we be perfect? We never, God doesn't expect us to be perfect this side of heaven and Jesus is our perfection anyway and, and God forgives my sins and, and we, we begin to qualify this verse so quickly and when we do that, sometimes we miss what this verse is actually calling us to. Holiness, perfection. Now, to be fair, those things are true. Jesus is our perfection. We will never be perfect this side of the cross. Sorry, this side of heaven. But those verses still mean something to us. They still call us to something. And they call us to holiness and a life that models itself on God's character and not the culture around us. That's what makes us different. That's what makes us holy, set apart. My research this week for this message, I came across an author as I was reading, someone I really respect. And, um, and he was suggesting that this idea of holiness being set apart, being distinct and different means that we can't have any sense of our Sunday gatherings that are attractional. We can't value good music. We can't value aesthetics. We can't value good preaching because all of those things are at best a distraction and at worst a compromise of the gospel. And I, I was reading it. I thought to myself, I, I just don't feel 100% comfortable. I mean, I, I get what he's trying to track with, but I, I, at one level, I feel like that might just be good contextualization. 
And in the end, as, as I was reflecting, I thought, you know what? Good preaching and good music aren't for the people that don't come to church. They're actually for the people that do come to church. They're for God's people first and foremost. What an encouragement it is to us when our band puts effort into leading us in the praises of God. We have a value here called undistracting excellence and we ask our teams to do that. Not so that we're slick and polished, but so that our attention and gaze can turn from this stage to heaven and we would worship Jesus. And so I was slightly uncomfortable with this idea. And I was reflecting, you know, we're not holy. We're not, we're not holy because we're culturally distinct. We're culturally distinct because we're holy. The difference about us is not that we're different from the world out there because we don't value aesthetics or we're, we're different from the world out there because we don't use technology. Right? I mean, the Amish use that line of argument, right? We're not going to do anything out there because it's worldly. The culture is evil, so we don't use it. Now, the primary difference about us is not that we're different from the world. The culture, the primary difference about us is that we're actually like God. And that, in turn, makes us different at some level. And at other levels, it might make us the same. But we're called as a church to be a holy people, a holy nation, as Peter will go on to say in chapter 2, verse 9. And that affects every single corner of our life individually as well as corporately. Holiness is not just an individual project. It's a community project. The only way that you will have the gospel spoken into your life in a way that's unfiltered from your own biases is to have people around you living life next to you so that they can see things and speak the gospel to those things. And that's why community is so important to us here at Anchor. That's why if you're not in a gospel community, we encourage you to get in one because holiness is not just an individual thing, it's a community project. The people of God are called to be holy. All right, that's reason number three. That's the longest of them. Reason number four is this, the judgment of God. You might think, well, hang on a sec. It doesn't sound right. Have a look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, judges fairly according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Does that sound right? Do we fear judgment? I mean, surely fear cannot be a good motivator for us. Doesn't doesn't perfect love cast out fear? Well, the fear that I think Peter is referring to here is not terror, is not a fear of um, eternal punishment, not a fear of being separated from God. What what do we fear? Do we we fear God's punishment? No. Do we fear his separation? No. Do we fear his wrath and anger? No. But we do fear his discipline. We do fear misrepresenting him. And we do fear his disappointment and disapproval over our sin. This is the type of fear that is produced with adoration and reverence. Fear. I was a a fairly horrible, horrible teenager. And uh, I was in trouble with school, suspended a couple of times, in trouble with the police. Brought home by the police on a few occasions, one of them being when I rode off my mum's work car as a 14-year-old drunk teenager. Um, 
And in all of those times, I was just bad at getting caught. I got caught a lot. And all of those times I got caught and all of those times I got in trouble. I never really feared that my parents would stop loving me. I never feared that my parents would kick me out of home. But I, I, I feared their disapproval. I feared their disappointment. I feared their discipline. Peter says this reverent fear of a fair, perfect father who disciplines, that ought to drive us towards holiness. That ought to drive us towards the flip side, the converse side of that is wanting to please him. But can I just say this? This might be the only time that fear is a good motivation. I was struggling to think of other examples where fear is a positive motivation. And if that's the only motivation that you ever have, if fear of God is the only motivation that ever keeps you living for Jesus, then, then maybe you've missed the point. This, this motivator is painted in the context of all the other five that Peter mentions. But it is a motivator nonetheless. All right, let's get to the final one. And I feel like we really need to get here because the last couple have been heavy. And so the final motivation for holiness is the gospel. Have a look at verse 18. Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Godliness, holiness is always attached to the tow bar of the gospel. Always attached to the tow bar of the gospel. If, it, if you don't attach your holiness, your godliness to the gospel, it just ends up in ruthless taskmaster religion. That, that's where you end if you remove the gospel out of that. In the end, what ultimately motivates us to live the way we do is what Jesus has done for us. It's the grace of God. It's the gospel. Now, at the first thought, you might think, well, that seems like a weird concept. How can grace um, lead towards God? I mean, surely it would be the other, other way around. Surely the concept of grace, the free forgiveness of God, would lend us to sin more, not less. It seems weird. I mean, if Jesus is going to forgive you anyway, what's the point in bothering with holiness? And as the person arguing against Paul in Romans says, if, if when I sin, grace increases, should I not sin all the more? So that grace might increase all the more. But that understanding is a deficient understanding of grace, of the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't just save, the gospel sanctifies. The gospel doesn't just save us, justify us. The gospel also sanctifies us. Grace changes us. Jesus has ransomed us. He's redeemed us from that empty way of living that we used to live. This idea of ransom that Peter touches on here is uh, what culturally in the Greco-Roman world is called manumission. It's a process where a slave who wanted their freedom would go to the temple of their God and would pay a sum of money, a ransom. And that ransom would be paid to the temple and then after a tax was taken out, filtered to the slave owner and that person would then be set free. 
But the God who was worshipped in that temple now owned them. And so they were freed from one slave master and then they were now slave to another. And that's exactly what Jesus does with us. He frees us from our slavery and our bondage to sin, but we are now slaves to righteousness, to holiness, to godliness, to Jesus. See, why, why are we different? Why do we pursue a holy, godly life? It's not out of a sense of religiosity. It's not out of a sense of obligation or self-righteous pietism. It's, it's because of the gospel. It's because Jesus has rescued me. He's ransomed me from the world, the flesh, and the devil. He's made me his. He's called me into his family. He's adopted me. He's set me free. He's given me a new start. That's, that's why we live this way. Not in any sense to try and earn the approval of God. The gospel is our strongest motivator for holiness. I love what the famous Puritan theologian John Owen said. He says, holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and living out the gospel in our souls. Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and living out the gospel in our souls. As we overflow from what God has done for us, our lives are radically changed and different. Once you get the gospel... Once you get what Jesus has done, how can you not love and serve him with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength? I love how Paul put it in Titus 2, 11 and 12. And hopefully this one's on the screen. It was a bit late, but this is what it says. Titus 2, 11 to 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And the grace of God does what? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. It's the grace of God that trains us, that motivates us, that helps us to say no to sin. You know, there's a whole bunch of motivations and reasons why we might say no. We might say no because we couldn't bear to live with ourselves the next day if we did that thing. Or we might say no because we fear the disapproval of our, our Christian culture and, and what they might think of us if we sinned. Or, or we, we might say no for the approval of another person, a parent, a family member, a leader. We might say no because of our, our own sense of personal self-esteem. And in the end, all of those reasons, all of those motivations in the mix they might be are selfish ones. Because it's all about me saving face. It's all about my sense of self-esteem or my sense of approval or disapproval. In the end, the deepest motivation we need is the grace of God, the gospel. And once that penetrates our souls, we begin to change. God makes us more like Jesus and his spirit works in our lives and makes us more and more holy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are reflecting the glory of God from one degree of glory to the next. We're a work in progress as we continue to be made more and more like Jesus. Friends, we are called to be a holy people, a holy people like our holy, perfect, righteous God. 
And that is only possible in the gospel. Because Jesus was the perfect spotless lamb without blemish, holy, laying down his life, taking our sin upon himself, gifting us his holiness, his perfection, his righteousness. All of that is only possible because of what Jesus has done. And so we're going to celebrate the gospel this morning. We're going to celebrate in two ways. The first is in the Lord's Supper. And I want to ask you to do this this morning. As you come forward and as you take the bread and you dip it into the grape juice there, I just want you to pause and think about the juice. It's a symbol of what? Jesus' blood. How valuable is it? Peter says it is more precious than gold and silver. The blood of Christ is precious and it was shed, spilt for your forgiveness. So as you come forward this morning, remember the gospel, remember the precious blood that was shed for your forgiveness, for your adoption, for your transformation, for your Christ-likeness. And we're going to worship God and respond to the gospel in song as well. Friends, if you feel this morning that you've been convicted by the Spirit on something, then, then please don't leave here without doing business with God this morning. Maybe, maybe you need to come to the cross for the first time this morning. Or maybe there is secret sin that you've been hiding that you need to do business with God on. Whatever it is, if you would like prayer for any of those things, then myself, Hope, Brian, maybe some others will be out in the foyer. We would love to pray for you. So please take advantage of that. But let me lead us in prayer as I invite the band to come up. Father God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. We rejoice this morning in what he has done for us. The thing that we could not possibly hope to do on our own. We thank you, Spirit, that you have sanctified us. That you have made us holy, set us apart. And Father, as we live in in a world and in a culture that might marginalize our faith and put us on the fringes, we pray, Lord, that We would not bow out. We would not cave in. But that these truths would motivate us this morning towards holiness, righteousness, and a life of distinct living so that the name of Jesus might be honored. And we pray this in his strong name. Amen.